I love UX research because I think it helps us remember why we build good products in the first place, which is to help the people that use them, to make their lives easier, to make their lives more fun or exciting or bring them moments of joy and connection. This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster, and this is Awkward Silence. Silence. <laughs> Hi, welcome to another episode of Awkward Silences. We're here with guest Holly Hester Riley today. Uh, she has a really interesting and awesome background that spans product, product coaching, consulting, and she's going to talk to us today about uh, kind of bridging the gaps across departments with decision makers and user researchers. So we're really excited to kick this off. So. Uh, welcome, Holly. Thanks, Aaron. I'm excited to be here. Fantastic. Uh, so, Holly, uh, I, I uh, did a little bit of a spoiler alert, just kind of introducing your background just a little bit. But if you could dive a little deeper into, you know, how you got where you are and what you're doing now, that would be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I have been in the New York City tech startup scene for about a decade now. I got into it after uh, grad school. Um, I actually started, I did my academic work, my research in chemical engineering and learned a lot about designing experiments and systems and how systems work. And then uh, went to look for a job in chemical engineering and, and uh, had a rude awakening that those jobs are not in New York City. And I love of New York City. So I went and said, hey, where, where are there a lot of jobs? What industries are fit for me? And, um, and I just fell in love with startups. So I started to work in startups. And doing that, I uh, was always very user focused, was really excited about what technology can do for the end user. And my first startup I was part of was a pre-funding bootstrap startup. And then I had another bootstrap startup. And then about five years into doing that kind of work, I moved over to a um, rapidly growing uh, venture-funded startup called MediaMath, which is um, a behemoth in the ad technology space. And that's the place where I got to really sink my teeth into what is it like to do product at scale? How do we um, innovate and iterate and communicate across departments, make things good for the customers and the people working on the teams. When I was there for three years, I managed the UX design team while I was there. We um, pushed a lot of continuous discovery, did early design system work. It was a really fantastic learning experience. After three years there, I moved over to Shutterstock, which is um, was already a public company in New York, um, but was one of Silicon Alley's first you know, startup success stories. Had been founded by John Oranger, still the CEO, and uh, grown to a 650-person company at the time that I joined. They had a small UX research department when I joined, um, a much bigger design team and a much bigger product team. And so I got to work on a bigger team with more people and get exposure to more different ways of working. I was there for about two years. And then I went and founded H2R Product Science. Um, I've always been passionate about teaching other people. And I want to help as many people as I can learn the things that I've had the privilege of learning in these, uh, these 10 years that I've been doing this work. Awesome. Uh, thanks for that overview. The question I have, just to kind of jump right into it, is, you know, why this topic? So the, dif the distance between user research and decision making, is that something you've had like horror stories with or you've seen done really well or it comes up a lot in your consulting? Um, you know, what brings this top of mind? Yeah, so I would say all of the above. Um, I think... Uh, 
what I see happen again and again is that a small team will be really close to their user. They'll understand their user and have all these deep conversations with their user. And then they build a great product and they start to get successful and they start to get traction. They hire more people, their team grows. It's all exciting, good things. But as that happens, um, the distance between that user understanding and the decisions that are made grows. And all of a sudden we have entire departments instead of just you know, the person sitting next to me as we like work together day in and day out. And it becomes much more challenging for the people who are making the decisions to understand the users the way that you need to if you want to keep building those amazing products. So I've seen that time and again, definitely was the case, you know, with, um, I would say some of the high growth startups that I worked at that had already started to happen. Um, But also I work with early stage startups and And I see that with them as well. And then when I go into an enterprise or some of my consulting clients have been enterprises, for them, usually that happened long ago. And it's it's so long ago that they've sort of forgotten. It's kind of, we have to teach the people there who are there now, how do we bring this to uh, the way that we develop our products? It sounds to me like you're largely talking about company size, where the larger a company gets, the more difficult it becomes to share and communicate information and insight. Are there different organizational structures you've seen make that problem better or worse? Yes, that is a fantastic question. So it's actually a passion of mine, uh, a passion topic of mine is how you structure your organization in order to make sure that the user knowledge is evangelized and shared everywhere. In a really highly performing organization, one with a lot of communication, you can get across it no matter what the structure is. But let's be honest, not that many companies are actually that highly performing at communication. (laughs) So I think the, the better you structure it, the better you are. What I have seen work best is when you have more of a embedded model where every team that's developing product has support from user research and, you know, from design, from market research right on that team, rather than it being a sort of a centralized agency within the company that people have to go to, get projects approved, have those projects executed and then delivered to the other team. When companies have that sort of centralized agency that's not really embedded on the teams, um, usually the communication and the understanding decreases. Right. Yeah. It, uh, the, the expertise is sort of outsourced to a central center of excellence. Yes. Kind of, yeah. If um, Yeah, if I'm a user researcher, you know, in a large-ish company, and I don't necessarily have the influence to change my team structure or the org structure, are there kind of like smaller tips of ways to start breaking down the walls that, you know, you've seen be, uh, be successful in terms of improving that closeness and that collaboration? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's a great question, too, because I've certainly been in that position where I don't have the power to change the structure. And uh, so I, I love to figure out, you know, how can you help regardless. There's a couple of things that I focus on. So the first one, I think the sort of lowest hanging fruit is is how do you communicate the results to the other people? So if you don't have, you know, approval or permission to bring the whole team with you on the research or, you know, they think they don't have the time and they don't want to come, um, for whatever reason, if they're not there with you, how you communicate those findings is the, is the most important thing. A lot of the mistake that I see a lot of uh, user research teams make is taking the position that 
they are supposed to draw all the conclusions and deliver a report that says, because we learned this from the customers, you should do this. Or maybe they don't take it quite that far, but they still say, you know, we did 15 user interviews and ran a survey with a few hundred people. And um, from that, we learned people in our customer market have certain traits, like they are willing to pay more and they are excited about um, this particular aspect, but they don't actually bring out quotes and videos and stories that other people in their company can really hang on to as ways to empathize with those people. And it's not that, you know, making that, that bring the stories, don't bring the videos, the pictures, the quotes, then it's just human nature that the people on the receiving side won't empathize as strongly with the customer that you're trying to make them feel deeply empathized with. Totally. There's probably some interpersonal stuff there too, right? Of if you're starting to reach conclusions and recommend decisions, you're almost like stepping on the decision maker's toes a little bit and like playing in their space. Whereas if you bring them a lot of um, assets and clips and quotes, you're almost like setting them up for an alley-oop to do what they do, which is make decisions. Um, Mm -hmm. There's probably some like actual like interpersonal office stuff that that plays in there too. Absolutely. One of my favorite ways to talk about it is actually, uh, so I'm a, I'm a mom, I'm a parent. I have two kids, one is four and one is two. And so I've been, uh, you know, deep in the toddler days in my past several years. And I often think of it the way, like the way that they teach you how to, how to parent toddlers is, um, you know, you may have something you want them to do, but you can't just tell them to do that because they want to feel their independence. So you have to sort of set some structure around it and give them some choices, but you're guiding them because in reality, all the choices in the world might be there, but you say, here's three choices. You know, these are the three things you pick one. In my, um, in my house, it's two, never more than two. <laughs> okay. That's true. Yeah, no, it's, it's usually two when you're dealing with toddlers, you, you know, you can have, you can have milk or water and that's it. Uh, <laughs> in the work world, um, I find three works better. Uh, people love to, um, really feel like they have a choice and, you know, grownups are more sophisticated than toddlers. So they know if you're, if you're trying to pull one over, but when you give them three choices, usually that's a good amount for them to be like, okay, here's some things to think through and pick something. Right. And more than three, you get into paradox of choice and all of that. So exactly. I I tease, but three, three is the magic. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Have you, uh, you know, people talk a, a lot, I think, are, and I, it's exciting to hear people talking more about how research is shared because that is kind of, you know, that's the work and that's how the insights get shared and understood. And it's so, so important. Um, visuals and videos and quotes and kind of, you know, these really human artifacts feel like a hugely important part of that. Are there any you know, methods that you've seen work really well? Is there a certain number, right? You hear five all the time for the number of interviews uh, you might want to do for a qualitative study. Is there a certain amount of evidence or the strength of the evidence or how you present the evidence? What works well with those videos and those quotes to kind of drive the insight home to the people who need to know about it? Yeah, that's also that's also a good question. I can't say that I've hit on like the secret sauce that like this is perfect and I always do this. It definitely depends on the, you know, how complex the situation is, how big is the sort of space you're exploring. But I would say uh, I think one thing that stands out to me is the idea of having a snapshot from every interview. It's something that, you know, I've come across in a couple of places. My favorite place that I've come across it is Teresa Torres. She teaches a course called Continuous Interviewing. She teaches the participants of that course how to create an interview 
interview snapshot. And the idea is that at the end of the each interview, you really quickly pull away, like, what are some key takeaways from that interview? And you generate this artifact from that interview, you know, really right away. And it has something, some picture or video, you know, where you can feel um, the connection to the to the user. And then it has, you know, so maybe a quote, two quotes, three quotes, however many quotes it takes to really express whatever is critical about it. And then I like to add, uh, so a lot of times in my work, we'll do a mix of qualitative and quantitative. So sometimes I'll come back and I'll also add sort of something that gives you a sense of where this person sits in the quantitative mix. And by that, what I mean is um, maybe we are uh, interviewing people in a really tight market segment, but that market segment is you know, only 5% of our user base. We care about it for this project for a critical reason, but it's not a huge segment. Um, it might be something where I would, I would pull out in that snapshot from the interview. You know, Mary is from segment X. It's 12% of our user base and here's why it's important to us or something like that. Just since we threw a little shade towards uh, decision makers and compared them to toddlers, I'm going to do the same for <laughs> researchers. Have you ever seen people kind of take the editing or the narration too far? So like when they're creating these snapshots, you know, whether they're conscious or unconscious biases they have around, you know, the outcomes and what they thought they learned, where they almost edit it too heavily and present, you know, take takeaways from the users that are not totally representative of everything that happened in the session? Or does that tend to not be an issue and people are pretty good about, you know, presenting a fair recap of, of how the session went? Ah, great question. Um, so I will say it's really hard to do that if what you're doing is creating clips. You certainly can, but you, you're really sort of... Uh, picking those clips with a fine assessment of what's important. Um, but I definitely, where I often see that is when people are creating decks with words, right? So they decide that, you know, this is, and I guess I shouldn't even say they decide, it's probably not a conscious decision, but they're biased towards seeing a certain thing. They want that theme. They say they see that theme and they pull the quotes that match. And then uh, you realize that you could have more or less created that deck before you even interviewed anybody. Okay. So yeah. If, so when you start getting into the paraphrase or like kind of typing stuff out yourself, part of the equation, people should be m more mindful of that. But like when you're just pulling clips and kind of more verbatim stuff, it usually is less of an issue. Yeah, exactly. Um, it definitely can still happen when you're pulling those clips, but it's, that is one of the reasons why I, as both a researcher and a consumer of research, I always look for the verbatim because that's how I can, it's essentially, it's your source material. It's going to the raw notes. I loved how you talked about also, you know, bringing in that quant evidence, if you have it, to kind of say how, how many people does this person represent? Because something I've seen is, um, you know, when people are getting newly excited about qualitative research, you know, one person says something that's like, oh my God, that, that was it. That now we know we figured it all mm -hmm. out. And that could be true, or it could just be one, you know, one person. So who do they represent? And um, what are they really helping us to kind of figure out that we already know is an issue or an opportunity and tying those things together also seems like a good way to kind of control some of that potential bias on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. One of the ways that I think about it is I kind of think that there are levels of levels of continuous discovery skill on teams. And so at the, the beginning is you're not doing any, right? And then there's the team that's, that's doing some, but 
Um, but they're still not making optimal decisions based on that yet. And there's a couple ways that that can manifest. And one of the key ones is, well, they're doing interviews, but they treat them all as equally important. They don't put them in context. They don't ladder it up to a strategy. And thus, um, they often end up kind of chasing their tails um, every time a different interview comes back with different feedback. I think that that's something that uh, in a healthy learning-focused organization is a phase that it's okay to pass through, but you should be aiming to get to the other side. And, uh, and I believe that teams all can do that, but, they, but it's good to be aware of it if you're, if you're experiencing that and start to ask yourself those questions of like, well, why did I talk to this user and not that user? Or how do I put their feedback in context? How, how far do you get just by having the decision makers involved um, up front in terms of agreeing on the problem or agreeing on the thing that needs to be you know, uncovered, even if you have silos, even if you don't have like, you know, best in class communication, does that go a long way in terms of getting them closer to the same page uh, at the end when there is like these outputs mm-hmm. or does that sort of get watered down through all the, um, the other challenges and it doesn't make that big a difference? I think it makes a huge difference. Um, I really think it does because, again, it gives those decision makers that agency, gives them the inclusion and the feeling of collaboration, and and it gives them the space to raise concerns if they have them. So anytime that you can get decision makers in um, early on, it's it's the best way to go. The way that I usually uh, like to do it if we're embarking on sort of a discovery research project is to have... A, a kickoff workshop where we do exercises together. And when I work with a client and they say, well, who should we bring to this workshop? What I tell them is there's three main groups of people you want to have here. You want to have, um, first of all, anybody who's actually going to be working on the product, um, whether they're designers or engineers or product managers, but people who are going to be making day-to-day decisions based off of this. Then you want to have the, the leadership of the project. So the people who are going to be influencing decisions that are made, maybe making calls on investment into it, um, who are going to be setting the vision and helping to synthesize the results. And then you also want to have anybody who could could basically stop uh, what's going on. So anybody who um, has enough uh, accountability for what's happening here and enough influence that if they didn't believe what you were doing was worthwhile, they could make it all change. Uh, whenever possible, you want to get all three of those groups of people to come and be a part of what you're going to do, what problem you're solving, why you're doing it, what's important, what are the concerns and questions you might have right from the start. Um, but it's not easy. I've definitely worked in organizations where that may be the ideal, but it's really hard to get those people to all come together. To expand on that really quickly, like what is your rapid fire, like idealized org setup, you know, for this type of process? Like if you were just going to kind of rattle through like process roles, you know, maybe it's fictional, but like if you were able to kind of design it yourself, what would the magic wand question, I guess, right, from user research, yes, uh, what would that the, look like in your mind? What would the magic wand look like? Um, so that's a really good question. So first, let me say, um, I definitely find that organizations often look different if they're B2B versus B2C, if they're SaaS or not SaaS, just because of the changing amount of outside decision makers, marketing and sales. Um I tend to work with a lot of B2B, so I kind of think in that space, uh, which means it's more sales and less marketing, um, generally speaking. So in an organization like that, um, I usually 
advocate for there being some high level uh, product leader who has a, a tech partner. So, you know, maybe that's your, your VP of product and your VP of technology. And then they oversee, you know, large product areas um, together. And then uh, they have um, a head of UX and there's somebody in the UX department who is a, uh, an expert in research. The way that I love to work when I see teams that, that work this way is that there's also um, sort of like a, a head of product data. And the, those two roles, the, the head of uh, user research and the, the head of product data, are really kind of like chief evangelists or chief educators. And what they do is they evangelize, like, why are these two things really important? What do best practices look like? And they have sort of a, an army of coaches under them, um, which are the people who embed on the teams or coach the teams and help each of the teams understand what does it look like when we do this well and partner with the, the product manager, the designer, the lead engineer on the product team to do the right research at the right time with the right communication. Does that sort of answer? I mean, obviously there's yeah, yeah. all no, sorts um, of things that went about around it. Um, no, I really like how you answered it. I, um, mm -hmm. Right after I said it, I was like bemoaning myself for kind of asking the best practices question because I'm a big believer <laughs> of like, you know, context matters. And I wish we'd call them like helpful heuristics or something instead that was like less, mm -hmm. um, you know, do it this way or it's not the best. Um, so I'm glad that you kind of like added all the context of, you know, what type of organization are you and what kind of, you know, what kind of business are you in? Um, and then, and then kind of expanded from there. Cause I think it really yeah. is important to, to factor all that stuff in. Yeah. Yeah. And to bring it back to kind of the real world, right. Um, without the magic wand, you know, we talked earlier about how to build reports so that they're useful and, and less biased. I'm curious, you know, and ideally you would get the decision makers involved as early as possible in the real world. Maybe you didn't do that, or maybe they can't stick with the project, or maybe you didn't exactly know who the right stakeholders were in the beginning, all sorts of things that could happen. Um, any just kind of top thoughts on how to navigate some of that to get those reports seen? Is it to, you know, have a, live or an on-demand experience? How do you get people to consume and remember this stuff and uh, on an ongoing basis? Yeah. So I think the first thing that comes to mind for me with, with some of the scenarios you just laid out, aside from those are very real, is, um, is uh, the value of one-on-one -on -one communication. I think that, you know, in the workplace, we are bombarded by information in today's workplace, right? Like it, there's you know, in most of them, there's, there's constant emails and, you know, wiki pages and articles to read and Slack messages. And it's, it feels like this huge endless list. And then on top of that, we have meeting after meeting after meeting. And when are we supposed to actually do the reading or, you know, God forbid, actually write and create something that we're going to share with others. So I, I think, you know, creating something that can be consumed asynchronously has value, but also is at risk of people just feeling like it's too much and then not actually watching or consuming it. So I would actually start with if, if you are in a situation where, you know, you're down the path and those decision makers or influencers weren't a part of it in the beginning is what can you do to get on their radar now and have a, a conversation with them and find out what's important to them about what you're doing and what concerns they have. And then come back with, okay, here's what I think you should know from my research or here's how I should share these results with you. Great, great. It's kind of like research, right? Ideally, you start early, but it's, uh, you know, it's never too late and uh, yes. get, get in there as soon as you can. Same with bringing in stakeholders, I guess, right? 
And it very much is. That's it's uh, exactly actually what I I try to apply the same continuous discovery practices to how we work within our companies. Yeah, everything is uh, is so meta, and just to to continue the meta ness, right? Like I think it is important for user researchers to have some empathy for the decision makers, right? Um, maybe mm-hmm. you did learn something that's very obvious or very you know clearly a customer pain point, but maybe in the decision maker's eyes, it's not a priority for whatever reason, right? So they agree with you that you've learned that, and that's a truth that needs to be addressed someday, but is not a priority now for reasons X, Y, and Z, right? So. There's just a lot of different factors that weigh into this stuff. Like you can learn things definitively, but still not act on them for other reasons. So um, there's a lot of, a lot of factors at play. Absolutely. And, and keep in mind that in a typical org, the people higher up will have a lot more access and information on the company's strategy, the resources that are available, you know, what is the company's competitive advantage, And there may be cases where you hear something in research that seems like a great opportunity, but just doesn't actually fit with those elements. And um, if you can't get a conversation with those people to hear that directly, at least keep in mind when you share research results, if if things aren't acted on, that there may be reasons you don't um, have insight into. Yeah, when I was working in a larger organization at at Vistaprint, um, a a kind of thing that was common within the organization, which I thought was really healthy, was this notion of like uh, your ladder of inference. Uh, Mm -hmm. we've both climbed up a bunch of steps uh, when you're having a conversation with somebody else in the business based on what we know and assumptions we've made and and other things. And so when we start to talk, we're we're both pretty high up our ladders um, and we might not know the assumptions or the data points that went into the conclusion that we're reaching. And Mm -hmm. so uh, I think people would actually say in meetings often was like, hey, why don't we like walk a couple steps down our ladders? And you would kind of like unearth like, well, I think this because of this and I think this because of this and the other person would do the same. And you'd often find like the blind spots that that like asymmetric information and it was super helpful to find common ground. And, and that might be a strategy that is applicable here as well. Yeah, I love that. It's, it's great also when you can have visuals that attach to what you're doing. It just helps people understand and, and picture it in their heads and remember it. So I like the idea of the ladder, taking a few steps down it. Holly, I have one more question and I'm going to do, I'm sure the, the, the thing that you do when you say you have one more question and we'll see what happens. Um, <laughs> but um, so just to kind of attempt to tie it all together a little bit, I think we've talked a lot about why and how these, uh, you know, silos happen as teams grow in particular. Maybe it's obvious, but how can you tell if you're making headway toward breaking down some of those silos between decision-making and user research? Are there signs that it's happening? Will everyone start to feel good and know more? <laughs> like what, what are some tangible signs that you're kind of working in a more harmonious and understood across kind of teams fashion when it comes to user research? Yeah. So uh, I do think that people start to feel better. Um, but the way that you can tell that is, the mood of the things they say and especially the things they say about each other, right? So if you have a one-on-one conversation with people on your product team and uh, maybe early on in the process of trying to bridge this communication gap, there's a lot of complaints and frustrations and, and people saying, I, you know, I brought this research back and I don't understand why it's not being used. And then on the other side, you have a conversation with people outside of that and they're saying I couldn't use that research it didn't it didn't tell me anything I didn't already know right that's one thing I hear a lot that especially happens when you sort of synthesize it into platitudes mm-hmm. 
And then, you know, maybe a couple months later, and, and I do mean a couple months, like it, it takes some time to build that trust and the habit of communication. And so you may see early wins where someone understands, but on the whole, it's going to take some time. Um, but if you work at it, uh, a couple months later, you may find, uh, and I've seen this happen, that those teams are now starting to say, oh, I understand the other side. I understand mm. why um, that research that this team brought me was important and tells me a lot about the customer and the people on the research side or the design side or the product side um, are saying, I understand why we're acting on this and not that, um, why the decision, you know, why this decision is being made. Um, and, uh, and then I think also if you just start to hear language where anybody who's making decisions or building or working on the product uh, more often references the user and specifics about the user that they got from the research, then you know that you're making an impact. Yeah, you're getting awesome. me to bring out uh, all the uh, the management tropes, but uh, <laughs> trust and trust and communication are usually inverse related, right? So inversely related. So if you're um, in a low trust environment, you usually need to over communicate to kind of combat that. And if you're in a high trust environment, you can usually get away with less communication. So, um, you know, that that's like a broad kind of team statement, right? But I think it's probably something that's worth keeping in mind as, uh, as people kind of go through this process of trying to make positive changes here that, you know, it might look different in the beginning than it does a few months down the line. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, just, to, just to recap, to make sure we got all the main points here, um, I'm going to kind of do my best to summarize some of the things you've shared with us. Um, sounds like one good tip for folks is to pull people uh, into the process as early as possible. So make sure up front there's some alignment and people have awareness as to what's going on. I think another one you mentioned was when you're sharing what you've learned, include great clips or verbatim quotes um, and maybe present it as a handful of options rather than like a firm recommendation and let people kind of make their own interpretations and conclusions. Uh, you had mentioned team structure wise, if you can get somebody embedded, you know, in the research uh, process or in the decision making process that can go a long way. Uh, were there any other kind of like key takeaway points for people to, uh, you know, write down on their cheat sheet to keep in mind? Be patient. Change takes time. For sure. I think that's, I think that covers most of it. Awesome. Well, it's, it's baked into the name. We're covered. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Let it fade. Let it fade. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences brought to you by user interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd. <laughs>